in the book of Hebrews. So find your Bible and uh, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. We are getting toward the end of this great book, and it's been an awesome study so far, but we're in chapter 10 today, and we're going to read verses 1 through 18 of Hebrews 10. So after you found that, why don't you stand with me? Let's honor the Word of God. Let's read it together. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there's reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come... In the scroll of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and upon and on their mind I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Let's pray together. Father, we uh, are so grateful today for your living word. Lord, we thank you that it is living and powerful, that it has the ability to pierce down to the very heart of every person. And Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit might bring conviction where that is needed today. Lord, I pray that if there are any here who do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that they would come to understand the clarity of the gospel today, that they would put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, and that they would receive your free gift of eternal life. Lord, we pray for all Believers, we pray for the body of Christ today that we might be all that you have designed for us to be. Lord, we thank you for 
the sacrifice of Christ. We thank you that it is absolutely, totally sufficient for all time. That there is absolutely nothing we can add to it. And so, Lord, we pray this morning as we go through this passage of Scripture that we would clearly understand it and that we might uh, know how it applies to us. Lord, we thank you today once again for the privilege of worship. We thank you that we can sing our praise to you. Lord, we uh, acknowledge that you are worthy. In fact, you alone are worthy of all glory and honor and praise. So, Lord, we offer up that sacrifice of praise to you, which is the fruit of our lips. And, Lord, we also offer um, our offerings, our giving. Uh, Lord, we know that that also is something that you have designed for us to be good stewards of the resources that you provide for us so richly. And, Lord, we pray that every aspect of our worship today would be pleasing in your sight. We commit all this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come back to our study of Hebrews this morning, and in many ways we could say that our text today represents the highest peak in the argument of this book. Hebrews 10, 1 through 18, concludes the central theological argument of Hebrews that speaks of the superiority of Christ's high priesthood and His atoning work. This section concludes the author's comparison of the two priesthoods. This is the culmination of the discussion of Jesus, the Son of God, as our great high priest. And although it may appear as if there is a lot of repetition in chapters 8, 9, and 10, each layer of the argument really goes deeper and deeper theologically. So this is the culmination of that. This text concludes the section and provides the most profound truth concerning Christ's superior priesthood and sacrifice. In fact, George Guthrie writes, perhaps more than in any other place in Hebrews, chapter 10 verses 1 through 18 presents clearly the Christian gospel. This will then be followed by an exhortation to respond in the light of these doctrinal truths, to respond with genuine saving faith to the message of the gospel. Now, we won't get through this entire passage today, as you might have already guessed, but this text reminds me of the fact that we need to be like the Apostle Paul and preach Christ and Him crucified. It is the ultimate sacrifice of Christ on the cross that makes the eternal difference. By the way, that message is not being preached today in all parts of the so-called church. There is a story that is told of an English village whose chapel had an arch. A cross was written the words, We preach Christ crucified. And for years, godly men preached there. They presented a crucified Savior as the only means of eternal salvation. But as the generation of godly preachers passed, a generation arose that considered the cross 
and its message antiquated and repulsive. They began to preach salvation by Christ's example rather than by His blood. They did not see the necessity of His atoning sacrifice. And as the story goes, about this time, some ivy grew up the side of the arch and covered over the word crucified. Soon, the only thing that was visible on the arch was, we preach Christ. Then the church decided that its message need not even be concerned with Christ. So the preachers began to give discourses on social issues, politics, philosophy, moral and psychological encouragement, or anything else that happened to spark the interest of the congregation. And the ivy on the arch continued to grow until it covered over the word Christ. And at that point, they were simply left with, we preach. But the book of Hebrews hammers home the truth that His atoning sacrifice was absolutely necessary and that our eternal salvation is based completely upon that. There is no greater message than that of the superior work of the superior priest. And we must never get away from that message in the church. In chapter 9, we saw the necessity of his sacrifice. But here in chapter 10, we really see the character of his sacrifice. We see what his sacrifice accomplished. And it is a work of eternal consequences. Now, since it has been three months since we have been in this book, I think a quick review is in order. This section began back in chapter 8, verse 1. And there really is a vital connection between what has already been covered and this concluding section here in chapter 10. For example, the reference to Christ at the right hand of the Father, which was introduced by a quotation of Psalm 110.1, is repeated in chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. And here the emphasis is upon Christ as the exalted high priest. We also see in this passage the bringing in of the theme of the new covenant from Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. And this was fully dealt with in chapter 8, but it is brought back in here as the other end of the inclusio. This is like a bookend that shows the completed work of the new covenant. In all of this, we have seen that Jesus Christ is far superior to the Levitical priests and that his sacrifice is far superior to the daily sacrifices or even the annual sacrifices on the Day of Atonement. And the inauguration of the new covenant is, as we've seen, the fulfillment of the old. The shadow has been replaced by the real thing. 
So with that in mind, let's move now into the text. And he begins once again by reminding us of the ineffectiveness of the shadow. The ineffectiveness of the shadow. Look with me at verse 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. This is a decisive conclusion here. The law cannot make perfect the sinner. It was never intended to. It was only the shadow of the form of the good things to come, which, of course, is the new covenant. And we've already seen this, but we're reminded of it here. The shadow is not the real thing. Here it is contrasted with the icon, the image, or the very image, as the King James Version has it. And one commentator wrote that the icon is an exact replica, not a uh, reproduction, not a partial reproduction, but it is perfect in a manifestation of itself is a reality. So the word icon really means now we're seeing the reality. Now we're seeing the substance. And as we have seen, that word icon is used all throughout the New Testament. It refers very often to Christ as the exact manifestation of God. In fact, in Colossians 1.15 it says, for he is the image, the icon of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. You've seen Christ. You've seen the Father. He's the, he's the exact manifestation of God the Father. In Second Corinthians 4, 3 and 4 we read, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded their minds, minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is in the image icon of God. He's the exact manifestation of God. The problem with the law and its Levitical system of continuous sacrifices was that it was not the real thing. Therefore, it could never perfect sinners. It was only a shadow of the good things to come. It was only a picture of the reality of the new covenant. Now, we've seen that word shadow before. It's used again here. It indicates something that is merely an outline or a silhouette or a vague symbol without any real substance. It's something that points to the real thing, but it's not the real thing itself. And under the Old Covenant, the priests were busy all day, every day, offering all kinds of sacrifices. But these sacrifices were not able to totally perfect for all time those who were trying to approach God. The best these continuous sacrifices could accomplish was a temporary 
covering for sin. It could never provide a full and complete atonement for sin. They were never able to provide full and complete access to God. They could never fully and finally cleanse the conscience of men. And even those sacrifices that were made by the high priest on the Day of Atonement could not accomplish this. And yet, that is exactly what was accomplished by the establishment of the New Covenant. The old system was never able to save eternally the sinner, but the New Covenant could. The shadows could only reflect the realities of the good things to come. They could only point ahead to the benefits and the privileges of the New Covenant. Paul wrote in Colossians 2.17, These things are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. What are those good things that he said were to come under the New Covenant? Well, things like absolute forgiveness, peace with God, full access to God for all eternity, a clear conscience, the removal of the guilt of sin, eternal security based on the grace and power of God, and many, many more. These were the spiritual blessings that were only pictured under the Old Covenant, but became a reality under the New. They were never realized until the coming of Christ. The Old Covenant system was a mere shadow without substance. And as John MacArthur points out, modern Judaism no longer even has much of the shadow left. Yes, they do celebrate certain feast days, but the temple is gone, all the sacrifices are gone, the priests are gone, there's not even a shadow left. Yom Kippur is still observed, but without any of the trappings of Old Testament ceremony. And because unbelieving Jews have rejected the New Covenant, even most of the Old has now lost its significance. MacArthur writes, Most Jews today follow neither Scripture nor the ceremonies. If, during the time When the previous covenant was in force, the old sacrifices could never make perfect the sinner, which is what Scripture says, then how much less effective would they be now, even if somehow they continued? You can't make perfect the sinner. Now, the word for make perfect there in verse 1 is tell you, It means to bring to completion, to bring to its intended goal. The intended goal of the Old Covenant pointed to access to God. But it can never accomplish that. It can never grant men permanent, complete access to God. It took the New Covenant to accomplish that. And the author of Hebrews stress that reality here by talking about the futility of sacrifices that were offered year by year. The priests under the old covenant system 
offered animal sacrifices continually, but these could never perfect sinners. Listen, you can pile shadow upon shadow upon shadow, but it still does not result in substance. It's kind of like multiplying by zero. You can multiply over and over again, but it doesn't increase the value at all. So why in the world did God go to all the trouble to establish the Old Covenant with all its shadow ceremonies and shadow rituals and shadow sacrifices? The reason is because it was important in pointing to the real thing. It had an important purpose in clearly showing man his sin and his absolute inability to deal with his own sin and the reality that there is only one remedy for sin, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. The Old Covenant was very valuable in pointing us to the New Covenant. The shadow was needed to help us see the substance. It was needed to show us that there is now, in fact, a way to be made perfect or complete spiritually, and that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. It was needed to show us there is now a way of full and complete access to God through the gospel. Going down to verses 2 and 3, he asks a question here. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. Animal sacrifices could temporarily cover sin, but they could never take away sin permanently. As a result, they could not cleanse the conscience. They could not take away the sense of guilt that comes with sin. The word for consciousness there has to do with man's innate awareness of wrong in his life and his sense of guilt because of it. God has built that into every person. But the old covenant system could not cleanse the conscience of men. If the old sacrifices under the old old system had been able to cleanse the conscience, then they could have been ceased to be offered because they would have sufficiently dealt with sin. Once the sin was dealt with, they would no longer be necessary. But the fact that they continued over and over again, year by year, just served as a reminder that the sins were still there and the guilt was still there. In other words, the old sacrifices not only did not remove sin, but they also served as a constant reminder that they had no ability to remove sin. The covering of the sin was only temporary. It it lasted only until the next sin. 
But the sin kept coming, and so the sacrifices had to keep coming as well. Old Testament believers were never freed from the presence and awareness of guilt, or consequently from the anxiety and the tension that guilt creates. There was no freedom of conscience under the Old Covenant system. And by the way, on a technical point, if you are aware of some of the debates over the the dating of the book of Hebrews, these verses indicate that the sacrifices in the temple were still going on when this book was written. And that argues for an early date for this book. It was probably written before 70 A.D. when the temple was destroyed. That's just a technical point here. But the primary weakness of the old sacrificial system was that it could never permanently cleanse the conscience because it could never permanently take away sin. The word for cleansed there in verse 2 is in the perfect tense, so it means to cleanse once and for all. It couldn't do that. The Old Covenant could not do that, but the New Covenant could. The Old Covenant, in fact, created even more of a sense of guilt because there was this constant visual reminder of the seriousness of sin. There was a river of blood flowing from the temple every day. The very repetition of these sacrifices proved their ineffectiveness in dealing with sin. If they had had the ability to deal with sin and guilt, then those sacrifices could have stopped. But they couldn't because they didn't have that ability. We'll go on to verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The shedding of animals' blood blood cannot take away the depravity of the human heart. The word for take away there in verse 4 is the Greek word aphario. It is used only one other place in the New Testament in regard to sin, and that is Romans 11, 26 and 27. And there Paul quotes the prophet Isaiah saying, The deliverer will come from Zion. And he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away, there's your word, their sins. Paul says, coming a day, this is, he's quoting Isaiah, there's coming a day when the new covenant will be inaugurated and then God will take away his people's sins. The reference to the New Covenant. With the coming of the New Covenant, sins would be completely taken away for good, which is something the Old Covenant could never do. The removal of sins under the New Covenant is a decisive, perpetual cleansing of sin. It speaks of a full and final cleansing of the conscience and a full, ultimate access to God. Now, so far, so good 
But we need to be very careful with this text. Because there have been some interpretive flaws by teachers and preachers in this passage of Scripture. And I just want to point those out before we uh, carry on. Because we need to avoid these traps. One of those comes from the contrast between the Old and New Covenants in regard to the cleansing of the conscience. We saw in verse 2 that the author of Hebrews speaks of the old sacrificial system's inability to cleanse a sinner's conscience permanently. And his argument, as we saw, is that if the sacrifices of animals could have cleansed the conscience once and for all, then the worshipers would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. And someone then might immediately contrast this with the new covenant and might conclude that under the new covenant, Christians should never feel guilty for their sins. But this presents not only a theological problem, but also a pastoral one. Even Christians under the new covenant sometimes feel guilty for sin. We don't stop sinning and become morally perfect the moment we become Christians. Now, certainly the process of sanctification should begin at that point, and then we should become progressively uh, less sinful, but Christians still have to deal with guilt at times. If we communicate in any way that those under the new covenant should never feel guilty, then we have misinterpreted and misapplied this text. It's clear from many passages that call upon Christians to repent of sin and to confess sin in the New Testament, that those under the new covenant do not attain sinless perfection in this life. In fact, the Apostle John wrote to believers, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. The difference, though, under the new covenant is that our sin is ultimately paid for And even if we feel guilty at times, sin has no ability to condemn us eternally. John MacArthur wrote, The forgiven sinner is not insensitive to sin, but he knows he's forgiven in Christ and is thereby delivered from the fear of judgment. One of the greatest joys of the Christian life is to know that there is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's Romans 8.1. And as I'm sure you know, Romans chapter 7 gives this long discourse about Christians battling the flesh. And he talks about the fact that we as Christians continue to struggle with sin. But in an ultimate sense, it can never condemn us because Our sins are covered permanently by the atoning blood of Christ. So again, we should be careful here that we don't give the false impression that under the new covenant, Christians should never feel guilty for sin. 
Biblically, that is not true. And that creates pastoral problems as well in our congregations if we even imply that. Now, another interpretive pitfall is closely associated with that. It's connected with the word for make perfect in verse 1. It is clear from verse 1 that the law and all its continual sacrifices can never make perfect those who draw near. This is contrasted with the new covenant in verse 14. For by one offering, he, Christ, has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. The problem, though, has been with the way some have interpreted and applied the concept of perfection. If we apply a modern concept of perfection, we will likely be either shocked or confused in this passage. Because most Christians are keenly aware that they are not perfect, meaning without any sin. Although I have talked to one or two who thought that, most Christians are keenly aware of their sin. In fact, if there is anyone who ought to be aware of his or her own sin, it ought to be a Christian. And the truth of the matter is, the more faithful and godly a person is, the more keenly aware of his own sin. He has a better knowledge not only of his own sin, but also the holiness of God. But what we must understand is that the author of Hebrews is using the concept of perfection in a totally different way. The Greek word that is used here means complete, whole, adequate, or having arrived at a desired end. The perfection that we experience under the new covenant is what we would probably call positional righteousness. Or as Guthrie writes, we have arrived at the end that God desired to accomplish through His Son's death on the cross. Our eternal salvation is secured forever, even though we may continue to battle sin in this present world. Now, maybe the best way to clarify the reality of the impact of the New Covenant is to say that under the New Covenant, we have already been freed from the penalty of sin. We are progressively being freed from the power of sin. And one day, we will be freed from the presence of sin. That's called glorification. One day we will experience perfection in the modern sense of the word. But it won't be in this life. It won't come until we're glorified in the presence of Christ. And in the meantime, the perfection that we experience under the new covenant is different from that of the old covenant. It is the assurance of eternal salvation now that is based on the finished work of Christ's atonement on the cross. 
So I've pointed to a couple of interpretive flaws we need to make sure we avoid. But I also, before we move on, I want to make one valid application here. What I believe to be a valid application. I do believe it is legitimate to point out the fact that religious rituals have no power to deal with sin. That was one of the primary weaknesses of the Old Covenant. The rituals were intended to point to the ultimate cleansing of the New Covenant. But they themselves were completely unable to remove the guilt and cleanse the conscience. In the same way, even today, there are millions of people who are depending on religious rituals to take care of their sin. Listen, that never works. The Jews were counting on the blood of all those bulls and goats to remove their sin. But the author of Hebrews declared it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Religious rituals can never deal with sin. It doesn't matter if it's lighting candles or going on some sort of pilgrimage or consuming a wafer or anything else. There is only one thing that can deal with our sin, and that is the shed blood of the sinless Son of God. That's the message here. It is only the perfect once-for-all sacrifice of Christ that can atone for and permanently remove our sin. Under the Old Covenant, those continuous sacrifices served to remind the people of their constant guilt, the guilt of sin. But as we will see under the New Covenant, God promises to remember our sins no more. That's verse 17. To completely remove the guilt of our sin. And unlike the Old Covenant, the New Covenant has nothing at all to do with religious rituals. It has to do with the final and complete work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That alone must be the object of our faith. Not trusting God for in some kind of religious ritual or practice. It must be in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. He is the reality. Those symbols are only the shadow. We must put our faith in the substance alone. My friend, listen. If your faith is in anything else other than the Lord Jesus Christ alone, your faith is in vain. If you are depending on some kind of religious ritual to deal with your sin, that will never happen. Rituals are merely external. They have no power to change the heart. That's why rituals have no power to cleanse a person from sin. Now, we know that sin is often manifested outwardly. But the root cause of sin is always the heart. Rituals can never deal with the root cause of sin because they, can, they only involve externals. 
no religious ritual can ever bring about the spiritual regeneration and heart change of the gospel. And listen, it doesn't have to be some kind of Catholic ritual either. This applies just as equally to some kind of Baptist ritual. I mean, some people think they're okay because they walked an aisle one time and said a prayer. They think they're good to go. Some people are trusting in water baptism to save them. Some are trusting in church membership. None of those things can ever take away your sin. Only faith in Jesus Christ can do that. And part of the purpose for God giving the old covenant system with its elaborate rituals and sacrifices is so that we could learn clearly that which can never take away sin. And that there's only one thing that can. The Lord Jesus Christ. We had to come to realize that our cleansing can never come from the keeping of the law. Because we're never able to keep the law. And we had to learn it could never come through the sacrificing of animals. We had to learn it could never come through an earthly priesthood. We had to learn that it it could never come from going to a certain place or doing a certain thing. It's not about that. We had to learn that it could only come through a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I intended to get further than this today, but uh, we'll come back and pick pick it up here next time. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that You would just, by Your Holy Spirit, help us to understand the seriousness of these truths. The insufficiency of the old system. The insufficiency of any religious ritual. That there is only one way of salvation. There's only one perfect um, sufficient answer and remedy for the removal of our sin, and that's Jesus Christ and what He has done for us on the cross. So Lord, we pray this morning that if there's any person here today that is unclear about that, or that Your Holy Spirit would help them to see it very clearly this morning. Lord, we pray that they would repent and put their faith in Jesus Christ alone and receive eternal salvation. We pray that all of us would understand that there's no reason ever to hang on to some kind of shadow because the real thing has come. Jesus Christ is the substance. The Lord, help us to put our highest priority on Him. Lord, we pray that uh, as we respond today, that we would uh, do exactly what You want us to do in response. Lord, we pray that you would uh, help us to do the right thing, uh, the thing that pleases you this morning as we respond. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.